When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ule, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Thank you, Emily. So good to be here with you guys this evening. I tend to take my health for granted until it's gone. And then all of a sudden I wonder where it went. And yeah, I'm just reminded how much of a gift it is even to have the gift of God to be able to come and be with you this evening. Now, um, this isn't a text that I would typically pick to preach. It's a very mysterious text. It's a very difficult text. But when we are walking through the Bible together, chapter at a time, bit by bit, we have the gift of not skipping any parts of the Bible that are hard. Because when you don't skip the parts of the Bible that are hard, you end up digging into them. And what you find are great and amazing treasures you wouldn't have found if you didn't dig. And I'll be honest that there is some work we got to do this evening to understand what we're dealing with here. But I 100% believe it's going to be worth it for our souls, for our hearts, for our minds, when we grow and get this text of Scripture, which is 100% for us. 100% for our encouragement. This text is actually filled with suffering. Filled with suffering and pain and death. And so my thought tonight is, I think there's some sufferers who need to hear Daniel 8 tonight. And so anyone who's feeling the curse and pain of this life, I especially believe that this text is for you. And for me. So let's hop in. Emily read just, just a few of the verses from, from the chapter, just so we'd have a little more time. We're going to go through the whole chapter. So we'll start out at verse 1 of chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belteshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. 
after that which appeared to me at first. So two weeks ago, Pastor Daniel preached on Daniel 7. There was the vision of the Son of Man. This vision comes two years later. It's the follow-up to it. The style in Daniel has shifted. If you remember the first six chapters, it's mostly history. And couched in that history, Daniel would interpret other people's dreams and interpret other people's visions and show us things about God. Now, what we're seeing are visions that Daniel directly receives and he spells them out for us and they're much longer and much more detailed than the ones that came before them. What's, what, what's going on here? This Hebrew literature, what it does is it repeats itself to make the same point over and over and over again until it massages it into our hearts. This book is trying to get into our hearts the truth that God's kingdom is above every earthly kingdom, it's going to outlast every earthly kingdom, and it's going to conquer every earthly kingdom. And I know we know it, but we don't fully believe it yet, because our lives haven't fully changed yet. And so this is going to push it one level deeper into our hearts. One more perspective to see this truth. A vision appears to Daniel. Verse 2. And I saw the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. What does this mean? So Daniel has transported through time and space. He's no longer in Babylon, where he is when he sees his vision. He's now in Susa, which is the capital of Persia. Persia is a nation that will capture and destroy the nation of Babylon. So he's fast-forwarded forward in time and gone to the other capital city. And what he's going to see is what's related to this next kingdom. What's going to happen that's related to this next kingdom that God follows God's plan after Babylon? Verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw... And behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the lamb charging westward, and northward, and southward. And no beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and became great. Daniel sees what we've seen so far many times in this book. He sees a beast. And we know from this book that beasts represent kingdoms and they represent people. What do we know about this beast, this ram? It's violent. It charges to and fro. What you should think right now is fear and death you see, we live in this wonderful country where we don't fear violence on a day-to-day -day basis. It wasn't like that in the ancient world. You can spend all your life working and building a house and creating a life, and because of violent people, it can be over like that. And it wasn't that unusual for that to happen. And it's awful. This ram is violent. No one can stand up to it. No one can rescue from its power. When you see this, you should not think, oh, a nice ram. You should think this is a disgusting beast who is acting like an animal and bringing death into the world. What does verse 4 say? It says, he did as he pleased and became great. He became great. What does that mean? 
That word become great can be translated to boast or become proud. This ram is an arrogant ram. He does not care for God. He does not care for people. He cares for himself and his own power. And he's going to take whatever he wants from whoever he comes across. So the kind of beast, the kind of creature we're dealing with here. Who is this ram? Well, we're going to find out, but the passage doesn't tell us yet. Instead, we see another beast enter, enter the fray. Let's take a look at verse 5. As I was considering, so Daniel's trying to figure out who is this ram. Behold, a male goat from the west across the face of the whole earth, came from the west across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come down close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So we see this horrible ram stomping on people, and nothing can stop it except for this flying goat with a big horn between its eyes. I know, I know biblical imagery is strange, but just stick with me. This flying goat comes out of nowhere and crushes the ram. It says he tramples on it, he destroys it in great wrath. This goat is uglier than the ram. This goat is more violent than the ram. This goat is more proud than the ram. Look, look at verse 8. It says it didn't become great. It became exceedingly great. Its pride was more disgusting, more greater even than the pride of the ram. And when you hear the image of the goat in the Bible, you should think the opposite of a sheep. God uses the image of a lamb and a sheep for his people because sheep are compliant, sheep are gentle, sheep obey. If you ever try to raise goats, I've heard they never do what you want them to do. Ever. This goat, this flying goat king with a horn is representative of someone who is obstinately defying God in his pride and crushing people as he does this. This is our unfortunately natural state apart from God. Our pride increases, our love for others decrease, and as we're pursuing our own ends, we crush people along the way. When you see someone going through life and there's a trail of hurt lives in the past, and you think, how could this be? Well, it can be because of our pride as people, and this is all of our destiny apart from God's help. We end up like the ram. We end up like the goat without God's help. So it's easy to think, look at that disgusting image in the Bible. I want to stay away from that. When we should say, God, help me not become that. Help me become the opposite of that. 
Thankfully, this great horn gets broken, and instead of it, there comes up four other conspicuous horns to the four winds of heaven. So you got one horn, becomes four horns. And then out of one of them comes a little horn. <laughs> and it grows exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. And it grew, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and it trampled on them. It also became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from them, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And the host will be given over it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary to the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So after the kingdom of the goat, there comes a ruler from this kingdom that is described as a little horn. It extends to the glorious land. Okay. The glorious land in the Bible is a phrase that refers to God's nation of Israel, the land of Israel. So whoever this is, he's some sort of geopolitical ruler who rules over the nation of Israel at some point. He's a great ruler. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. When someone who's opposing God grows great even to the hosts of heaven, what you should think is, that's pride, that's opposition to God. We see this language in Genesis 11, chapter 4. Remember when they're building that tower in Babel to oppose God? It says, and they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So this, this, this little horn has this spirit of battle that defies God. And some of the hosts and some of the stars that threw down to the ground and trampled on them. That's a tough phrase. That's a difficult phrase. What does this mean? The stars and the hosts of heaven in the Bible is a way that the, angel refer, the Bible refers to angels and other spiritual beings. So what this is teaching is that this evil spiritual ruler has not only moral wickedness on his side, he has spiritual wickedness on his side. And he's, the spiritual wickedness that's on his side is accompanying his kingdom, and it's destroying some of the good spiritual beings God had put in place to take care of people. So this kingdom of the little horn is both a natural kingdom and a spiritual kingdom. Which shouldn't surprise us at all, does it? Do we not think that the evils in our society are also spiritual? There's no such thing as a natural kingdom without spiritual influence. And that this is pointing to the fact that beyond what our eyes can see, there is spiritual influence behind the evil that we are facing, and there is spiritual influence behind the reign of this little horn. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. So there's this ruler in heaven that we'll get to, this prince of princes, that he thinks he's as great as this person. 
These descriptions mean that the, the pride of this person are incomparable. Dan Daniel's going to say at the end of this chapter that he gets physically sick from the vision. And I think part of the reason why is that if we understand how vile these descriptions are of this person against God, we would have the same reaction. And that's good. May, may we have that reaction to evil and pride against our God. I don't have it enough. I don't, I don't usually feel physically sick when I see people dishonor my God. But Daniel does. And may we grow to love our God's name so much that when we see pride this ugly, that we would be sick. It, it would make us sick to our stomachs. That not our, not losing sports games, not losing elections, that that stuff wouldn't make us sick. Dishonoring God would make us feel sick. This, this, these descriptions, they are sickening. So this little horn says, and a regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. So whoever this little horn is, he interrupts sacrifice at the altar in Israel. He won't let sacrifices happen. And he overthrows the temple. He does something to desecrate or dishonor God at his temple. And a host will be given over to it. I take that to mean that Israel, the people of Israel, are given over to it to suffer under this little horn, together with regular burnt offering because of transgression. If you know anything from the Hebrew Bible, the people of Israel sin, and they sin, and they sin. And because of their transgression, God hands them over to evil rulers to punish them. I think that's what's going on here. There's a handing over to the little horn to punish the people of Israel because of their sin. And it will throw its truth to the ground. This little horn will have no respect for the Bible or for God or for the scriptures. And it will act and prosper. So it's going to be good. This little horn is going to be good at what he does. At the evil that he comes to carry out. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke. For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? The transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Okay, finally, we have some good news. There's going to be horrible suffering that this little horn brings to God's people. But there is a limit. God decides how long he reigns. Six and a half years, you get that long to bring punishment and pain to my people and after that you can go no further God's in control who's in control Antiochus the little horn thought he was in control God decides how long he's in control six and a half years is what you got and no further and anyone or anything causing you suffering right now God has determined this long and no longer he determines when it stops. Because he is the one on the throne. No one else. Verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. 
So he came near to where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. This is a really encouraging verse to me. Verse 15. Daniel sees this vision, and he doesn't understand it. So if you're confused right now, don't worry. You're not dumb. Daniel, this prophet of God, didn't understand this vision. God wants him to understand it. There comes before him one having the appearance of a man. A man. Who is this man? Daniel preached two weeks ago on the Son of Man. The Son of Man means a human. There's a glorious human who rises up above all the rulers of the earth to the level of God. This is Jesus who we worship. I think that this man here is the same man that Daniel saw two chapters ago. I think Jesus shows up to let him know what's going on. And he tells the angel Gabriel, go and tell Daniel what this vision is all about. So Gabriel goes over to Daniel. And if you know anything about angels, they, they minister in the presence of God. They're, they're with God. So they reflect his beauty and his glory. So when Daniel encounters Gabriel, he is encountering God. Amen. And what's his response? It says he is afraid and he falls on his face. Finally, we see someone in this chapter who is honoring God. Finally, we see someone who loves God. He's in contrast to everything we've seen before him. We saw a ram that was full of pride and thought nothing of God. We saw a goat that was the same way. We saw a little horn that's so despicable we can hardly even stomach it. And now we see Daniel bowing before God. And I'm so encouraged that in our culture, no matter how much God is disrespected, no matter how much he's disregarded, nothing or no one can stop you from honoring God. Nothing can. Nothing can get in the way of your worship. You can always respect God and fall on your face before him in fear and trembling, even when you're surrounded by beasts. That's what this chapter is inviting us to do, is to honor and respect God like Daniel does. So he says to him, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Okay, the time of the end. So the end is a word that can mean a time where God fulfills his prophecy and fulfills his purposes. So the way I read Daniel is that these kingdoms and history is driving forward in time to the birth of Christ when God comes into the world and fulfills his plans. So what this vision is for is it refers future, towards the future in time as God is working in the midst of these pagan empires to prepare a world for his Christ to come into the world so he can save and transform the world. Daniel, seal up this vision. This is for the, closer to the time that I am sending my Christ into the world to save and rescue my people. Okay, verse 18. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. 
but he touched me and made me stand up. It's a strange chapter, and this is just about the part that was too strange for me to get my mind around. That when he's finally about to understand what the vision is about, he falls asleep. I don't think I'd be sleeping at this moment. The more I thought about it, I wonder if this is a picture of Daniel's dependence on God. That what we see is self-sufficient beast, self-sufficient beast, self-sufficient beast. And here we see weak and needy Daniel, who needs the touch of God to give him strength, even to stand before God and listen to him. Could be wrong. Just maybe the, the, what I'm thinking it could mean. Which, is, which means that as we are surrounded by people who live self-sufficiently and encourage us to do the same, we need not come under that influence. Instead, we should depend and trust like Daniel. He touched him and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what will be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Okay. I think the latter end of the indignation, that's a word that means wrath. So I believe that God's people are in a period of judgment in the book of Daniel as they are conquered by empire after empire. And they're in a time of judgment because of their sin. And it refers to the time of the end. At the end of this time of judgment, the Christ comes into the world. I think it's repeating what was already said. Verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, finally, something very clear. The ram is the kingdom of Persia. Persia, ram. Persia, ram. Okay, very clear. Persia was... Two kingdoms, the kingdom of Media and the kingdom of Persia, that united under one king called Cyrus. The ram has like two oblong horns, like one of them is higher than the other one, or it actually becomes higher, like does this. And that's pointing out that the Persian kingdom, even though it begins as smaller than the Media kingdom, actually grows and becomes larger and dominates over that kingdom. What we're starting to see here is uncanny attention to detail that is very miraculous for a prophecy before it happens to be able to foresee. What happens next? Verse 21. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in the place of which four other horns arose, Four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. The goat is Greece. And the conspicuous horn, the great horn that comes out of its head, what we find in history is that it's Alexander the Great. The reason why he's a great horn is because he was the greatest military leader to ever live. He conquered almost all the known world before he was 30 years old. And he is as vile as this goat describes him as being. You would not have wanted to meet Alexander the Great in the ancient world. The amount of bloodshed 
The amount of horrors and violence that accompanied his life is unbelievable. Unbelievable the way he treated people. It says that that horn is broken, which is true. He died when he was about 32 years old. And after some infighting and struggles, four generals, four horns, took over what was left of his kingdom. What we have right here are details that are impossibly accurate. Impossibly accurate about history. So much so that when secular scholars read this text, they say, well, it's so accurate, it was written after the fact because you couldn't have written it before the fact. So they don't know two things. They don't know, first of all, the power of our God. It's not a problem for him to know the future. It's not a problem at all. It's in fact, he, he writes it all so he knows it. But they're also failing to grapple with an incredibly important historical fact. One of the most important historical sources outside of the Bible writes about when Alexander the Great conquered Jerusalem. Now, when Alexander was coming into the city, the high priest at that time, the, the historian's name is Josephus, by the way, Josephus writes about this, is studying the Bible, reading the book of Daniel. So the book of Daniel is already written if he's reading it. And I could not believe this. He figured out that Alexander was the goat as he was taking over the city. And he actually brought the scroll to Alexander the Great. Josephus writes about this. He brings him the book of Daniel, opens it up with him, and shows him, Hey man, here you are. Here you are. And Alexander was so compelled by the description that he actually ended up offering a sacrifice to the God of the Bible afterwards. And this is all included in history outside of the Bible. And what I could not help but think about is what better picture is there of the control of our God over everything? That as Alexander walks into the city and thinks he's the god of everything, it's all written in the book already. It is all there. His rise, his fall, he's a blip in history compared to our God. He is the author of history. And now the book continues to write. The, the, the verse goes on. Verse 23, and at the latter end of their kingdoms, when the transgressors have reached their limits, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. So we see a picture of great wickedness here. I think that this is the little horn that was referred to earlier in the vision. And when we put together the pieces of history and see who is the evil ruler who occupies the promised land, who stops sacrifice at the temple, who does something awful to the temple, when we put together all those pieces, 
the historical figure that this is almost undoubtedly referring to is a Greek man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He took over this quarter of Alexander's kingdom and he inflicted suffering on God's people that would not even be appropriate for me to talk about here. The whores that he committed are unconscionable. It says that he's one of bold face. That means he acts very rashly. And in history, it shows that he was ruled by his emotions and his murderous rage. It says he's one who understands riddles, which is a way of saying that he was a master at trickery and deception. And when he took the city of Israel, he lied and told his, the, the city of Jerusalem that he's there to help them, and they let him in, and the slaughter followed. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great, Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes. So it describes him as using cunning and deceit. We're going to get back to that. I think those are important words for interpreting this passage. In his own mind, he shall become great. I think this is referring to what was referred to earlier in the chapter. The transgression that makes desolate in verse 13. So, God made this temple for his name to be worshipped. And one thing Antiochus does when he arrives at the city is he stops allowing God's people to sacrifice at this temple. In fact, he'll kill you if you try. And instead of that, he sets up an altar to Zeus, a pagan false god in the temple of our god and sacrifices an unclean pig on the altar. The sacrilege, the offense, the horror of this is un beyond explanation. This man is as opposed to God and to people as it gets. After he takes the city, a slaughter breaks out in Jerusalem. And 80,000 people die in the course of three days. They just think of that. Minneapolis lost 80,000 in three days. Friends, family, children, relative parents. The suffering in Jerusalem when Antiochus was king was immense. Immense. Now why is God sharing with us ahead of time the suffering? Why, why does he go to such lengths to write to his people about this horrible, horrible suffering that they were going to go through? John Calvin writes that God tells them ahead of time the suffering they're going to go through so that they would not believe it's random when they're going through it. And what that means, that this detail of our God over history and over suffering, means that the suffering you are going through right now is not random. It is not out of God's control. It is not for no reason. 
There is no such thing as random suffering in the life of a Christian. There's no such thing as purposeless suffering in the life of the Christian. The suffering that you just wish would go away, that you think about day in and day out, that you wonder what God is up to, He's up to something. Do I know what it is? I don't. I just know He's in control. There's not a single bit of pain that slips through His fingers without His notice. He upholds every sufferer because He knows all suffering. The God who is the author of history is in control of history. He's in control right now of what you are going through. I think that's one thing that we're supposed to walk away with from this passage. God is in control of history, and he is in control of your suffering. It's the second one. Here is, I think, probably my favorite part of the whole passage most joyful part of the whole passage says and he shall be broken he shall be broken but by no human hand God always defeats his enemies God always defeats his enemies he defeated Antiochus and he'll defeat your enemies which means you will not suffer forever. The people of Israel had to suffer under Antiochus for a period of time until God destroyed him, and you will have to suffer for a little bit of time until God destroys your enemies. You see, Antiochus was king over Israel until, it says, no human hand undoes him. That means the hand of God came and judged him, and that is exactly what happened. Antiochus was proudly riding around. He had a plan to come and to wage another war against Jerusalem. And while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he suddenly dies a horrific death. This is what the book of 2 Maccabees writes. Maccabees is a Jewish historian book. Who, it's very valuable to the Jewish people, but it's not the level of scripture, but it's still valuable history. It says... Because of Antiochus' intolerable stench, no one was able to carry the man who for a little while before had thought that he could touch the stars. This proud oppressor of people who thought that he was in control, God cut him down in a second. God demolished him. God leveled him. And the main point of my sermon this evening is that God always defeats his enemies, and he's going to defeat your enemies. He's going to defeat your enemies. And I want you to see even more right now why that's important. You see, I think Antiochus is pointing to something bigger and more important than Antiochus. It's like so much in the Bible. He's a picture of something else. Let's put the pieces together. Antiochus is described like a beast, or in the context of other beasts. So he's, he's a beast. And it says in verse 25 that he has cunning and deceit. A beast with cunning and deceit. What, what, what's coming to mind? If we take a look at Genesis 3, chapter 1, it says, Now the serpent 
was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. So the serpent is described, Antiochus is described with the same words that God uses to describe the serpent in Genesis 3. And the reason for that is I think Antiochus is an image of the serpent, and he's an image of the evil and the suffering that we're having to face right now. You see, I, I've said before that, that no, none of your suffering is meaningless. None of your suffering is meaningless to God, but there's also an enemy that has a purpose behind it. And oftentimes designed it. The pain and the suffering in this world did not happen by accident. There was a serpent with a plan to make things the way that they are right now. And he succeeded for a while. There is pain and suffering that we are going through right now as a family, as individuals, that are because of this serpent. And it is his plan that you would suffer. And he is inflicting suffering on some of us right now, even directly. Now, God had a plan to defeat the serpent. Did you know that? Right away in the garden. God had a plan to defeat the serpent. Later in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity, or I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. So a descendant of the woman is going to come and finally beat the serpent. And the serpent's going to wound him in the process. What we find as we read through the scriptures, that the one who finally strikes down the serpent is our Lord Jesus. He's the one who puts to death the one who makes us suffer. Jesus doesn't just remove the instances of suffering from our life. He kills the source of them. He kills the source of our suffering. I can't promise you that today you'll stop hurting. But I can promise you one day you'll stop hurting because Jesus killed the source of our suffering. You see, when he went to the cross, when Jesus went to the cross, in, in, in Daniel we see beast after beast fighting and devouring each other. That's how the kingdom's how one kingdom follows the next. Violence and pain and bloodshed. Jesus is the first king who doesn't become king by acting like a beast. He doesn't show up and start killing people. Instead, he lets people kill him. The beasts come against him and he takes their violence, he takes their anger, he takes their pain. And that's how he defeats the serpent. That's how he sets us free. Because when he was hanging on the cross, our sin, our shame, our death, he took it all. It was all on him. So now when our enemy comes against us, like what can he do to us? He can try to kill us, but we'll come back to life one day. He can try to condemn us before our God, but now our God will forgive us because of what he did. What I want us to see this evening is that when Jesus died, he was killing your enemy. By taking away all your enemy's power to hurt you. He was killing your enemy by taking away all of his power to hurt you. That's why the Apostle Paul talks this way about the forgiveness of sins in Colossians 2. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. 
when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And here it is. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him. When Jesus was slain, he slayed the serpent. He slayed the ultimate reason why you have pain in your life. And we do, right now, have pain in our lives. Little antiochuses. Little chronic pains in our body. Relational strife. Trauma that won't go away. Addictions that won't go away. People that hate us and are undermining and sabotaging us. This text is not teaching that those things will go away immediately. This text is teaching that they will go away. That God has set a limit to all of the suffering you have to go through. All of the pain you have to experience. And there's going to be a day when Jesus comes back and you'll never have to experience any of it again. Any of it ever again. I'm looking forward to that day with you. So much. And the application I want to bring home for us is that suffering is so much a matter of perspective. Nothing can tend to take my focus off of my Lord like suffering. As soon as I start to hurt, my mind goes off of Jesus and onto the hurt. But really the reason God is letting the hurt into your life is so that your hope would grow more in Jesus. Okay. That's the reason why it's there. I have some pain that I'm dealing with, and at my worst moments, I'm just thinking about it, and at my best moments, I'm thinking about God's plan to take it away forever. That's right. Amen. That's right. So what I want to call us to today is to respond to suffering by not focusing on suffering, but by focusing on the one who destroyed suffering. Come on. That's the response this text is calling us to. And if anyone's here who doesn't yet know the one who destroyed suffering, and you don't want to suffer forever, neither, we don't want you to either. Talk to me, talk to any of us. The one who struck down Antiochus will save you too. If you ask him to. Verse 26 goes on. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Um, the angel says this is true, and as we walk through hundreds of years of history, he's right. I don't know what else to say. It's true. This, this is exactly what happened historically, and it is absolutely mind-boggling. This is, this, the way that this chapter confirms history, confirms the trustworthiness of our God, and is a great reason for you to hope in him in the midst of suffering. The God who predicts history, who writes history before it happens, can help you. You can trust him. It refers to many days from now. It's right, Daniel was talking about, this angel was talking to these things about Daniel hundreds of years before they happened. Verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Which is understandable when you understand the horror in this vision. Then I rose and went about the king's business. 
So Daniel had to return to everyday life. He sees this vision, he's sick to his stomach, and he has to get up Monday and go to work. And that's so much life for the Christian. That you're going to see things in the Bible that rock you, you're going to see things in the world that rock you, and God is calling you to get up on Monday morning and go love your coworkers. Not to stop, but to keep loving. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. It's okay, family, if we're still struggling to get this vision. It's a crazy one. Daniel still struggled with it. We, we have the added perspective, though, of being this side of history and being this side of Christ that we get to see even more than Daniel saw. Because Daniel, this vision is more for you than it is for Daniel. And it's more for the, you than for the people of Israel. And so my hope, my hope this evening, is that we're able to see in this text of God who is sovereign over suffering and who destroys suffering, and that this text that was beforehand so mysterious to us is now such a big encouragement to us. That's where I want us to leave off this evening. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you care about our suffering so much that you sent Jesus to suffer with us, to suffer for us, and to save us from all suffering forever. And I just pray, Lord, that we would worship that Jesus appropriately now. That our hearts, affections, our responses would be what a Savior who destroys suffering should receive. I pray that you would help anyone who's especially suffering right now to have a deep trust in you. A deep trust in you like never before. And for our family to know how to comfort those people. In Jesus' name, amen.